Welcome back to the Spooky Scani podcast. This is the podcast that covers everything that is paranormal, criminal, spooky, and just plain weird in the state of Wisconsin. This is the second episode in the Jeffrey Dahmer series. If you haven't listened to the first one, go back and catch that because there are going to be some things I talk about in here that I explained in the first episode. And also, like, you wouldn't watch the last half of a movie, right? Like, go listen to the first one. When we last left Jeffrey Dahmer, he had just convinced a judge he was going to change his ways after molesting a child. Let's rejoin him a year later, shall we? On May 14th, 1990, Dahmer moves out of his grandmother's house, where he had had to move back into it, um because of the molestation charge and having just gotten out of jail and all that jazz. He moves into apartment 213 at 924 North 25th Street and takes any mementos he'd kept from uh, his previous victims, including the mummified head and genitals of Anthony Sears. Within one week of moving into his new apartment, he had already killed his sixth victim. Raymond Smith was a 32-year-old sex worker who Dahmer lured to his apartment with the promise of $50 in exchange for sex. At the apartment, he gave Smith a drink laced with seven sleeping pills and manually strangled him. The following day, Dahmer purchased a Polaroid camera with which he took several pictures of Smith's body in suggestive positions before dismembering him in the bathroom. This all becomes a very major part of his M.O. And with very few exceptions, this is what he tends to do with the rest of his victims from here on out. He boils the legs and arms and also the pelvis in a steel kettle with Soylex, which allows him to then rinse the bones off in his sink. He dissolves the remainder of Smith's skeleton with the exception of the skull in a container filled with acid. Dahmer later spray paints Smith's skull and he places it alongside the skull of Anthony Sears upon a black towel inside a metal filing cabinet. About a week later, it's on or about May 27th, Uh, Dahmer lures a young man to his apartment, but he fucks up. Um, You know how he spikes the drink, right? He'll go and he'll be like, oh, I'm going to make us a drink. And then he sneaks the sleeping pills into the one drink. Well, just this one time, he forgets which drink is which and drinks the laced drink himself. He wakes up the next day, and his intended victim stole a bunch of his clothes, $300, and a watch. He doesn't report this to police, natch, you know, when you have, like, a severed head and genitals, you don't report this. On May 29th, though, he does share that he'd been robbed with his probation officer, Because remember, he's also still on probation, you know, for molesting a kid. In June of 1990, he brings a 27-year-old acquaintance to the apartment named Edward Smith. 
He drugs and strangles Smith. And instead of just immediately acidifying the skeleton or going through his normal process, he actually puts Smith's skeleton in his freezer for several months because he thought maybe it wouldn't retain as much moisture, which like from a scientific background, bruh, no, this is not going to work. Obviously, it didn't work. And then he acidified the body like later on. He destroyed the skull on accident because he placed it in the oven to dry and it exploded. It exploded. Later, he told police that he felt rotten about Smith's murder since he didn't get to keep anything from the body. Less than three months later, he meets a 22-year-old Chicago native named Ernest Miller on the corner of North 27th Street. Miller agrees to accompany Dahmer to his apartment for $50, and then is like, oh, you want to listen to my heart and stomach? Okay. Dahmer decides, hmm, since I'm here, I might as well try to suck your dick. And Miller says, you know what, that's going to cost you extra. So that's when Dahmer goes and grabs the drinks. He only had two sleeping pills to put in Miller's drink, though. So Miller's out for a very short amount of time. And when he wakes up suddenly in the middle of Dahmer doing stuff to him, Dahmer kills him by slashing his carotid artery. And he does this with the same knife he uses to dissect the victim's bodies. So it's a knife he really has taken time to, like, sharpen and make sure it's in the best possible form, which, to be honest, is kind of a godsend in this type of a situation because I'd rather have something sharp nick my carotid and die quickly than try to have someone use, like, a very dull knife to do that. I don't know. He bleeds to death within minutes. But not before Dahmer grabs his Polaroid camera and is, like, taking pictures of Miller dying and bleeding out. He puts Miller's body in the bathtub for dismemberment after he does the sex to it. While he is dismembering the rest of the body, he takes time to, like, kiss Miller's face and talk to him. Which, everything I read was really, um happy to point that out with this victim, but I'm pretty sure if you're going to do it to one victim, you probably do it to most victims. And let's be real, how many of us don't talk to random stuff when we're doing things? Like, I talk to random stuff all the time. Like, hey, Jerry Coke, how you doing? I'm going to put you in my mouth, Um, which I am, but like, you know. I cannot be the only other person who does this and also isn't a serial killer. That's all I'm saying. He wraps Miller's heart, Miller's biceps, and parts of his legs in plastic bags and puts them in the fridge so he can eat them later. 
He boils the rest of the flesh and organs, and they turn into this jelly-like substance because, again, he's using that Soylex. And he wanted to keep the skeleton, so he rinses it off, puts the bones in this light bleach, bleach solution for 24 hours, and then allows them to dry like like you would with dishes, right? Um, and this is all stuff that his father had taught him to do, by the way. The severed head was initially placed in the refrigerator before being stripped of flesh and then painted and coated with enamel, which is a smart move because at least it won't get as brittle as the other ones that he's had to discard at this point. He's learning. Three weeks after murdering Ernest Miller, on September 24th, Dahmer meets a 22-year-old man named David Thomas at the Grand Avenue Mall. It's a mall, but it's, like, weird, because it's set up between several buildings, and then there's, like, skywalks. And, like, I I was there, like, a decade ago, going through this mall and being like, what the fuck is this place? It's weird. Anyway, it's not, like, ye grand mall, okay? It's it's a weird mall. Anyway, Dahmer persuades Thomas to come to the apartment for a few drinks, and again with his M.O. of picking up people who are down on their luck or people who are sex workers, he offers money for nude photographs. Dahmer would later state that after giving Thomas a drink full of sedatives, he felt bad because he realized all of a sudden he wasn't attracted to Thomas, but he was still allowed, or still afraid, excuse me, to allow him to wake up in case he would have been angry about being drugged. So he decides to go through with strangling and dismembering. Since he wasn't attracted to Thomas, though, he intentionally doesn't keep body parts. He does take photographs throughout the dismemberment process and keeps them and honestly that's part of what led them to being able to identify this victim as being David Thomas. So as creepy as it is that he took photographs he didn't remember people's names. He probably didn't know many names and these photographs at least allowed us to find the victim's families and let them know what had happened. I can't believe I'm saying I'm kind of grateful for these photographs. Jesus Christ. Um, okay. He doesn't kill anyone for like five months. He tries to bring a couple of guys back to his apartment during that time period, but like, you know, it just wasn't happening. So he takes all of that creative energy, you know, that you use when you do the same thing over and over again to dead bodies and starts planning the altar he wants in his apartment. Um, and this is really interesting because it's got like different sets setups. So he wanted this black shower curtain behind the altar um, and was going to put that in front of a window. And then um, 
I'll put a link in the show notes because this is wild. So on either side, he's got skeletons that have been painted. And then there's a black table where he has the skulls that he's saved that have been painted. And then there's like one of those funky lights that has like several different bulb things coming down behind that in front of the window. And then he has like a little plaque above the window and a chair set up in front of the altar so that, you know, he could uh, sit there and look at it. It's so creepy. He is also known to regularly complain of anxiety and depression to his probation officer throughout this time. And you know, talks a lot about being gay, being alone, not having a lot of money. And this is when he also starts talking about feeling suicidal. He was really careful, if you think about it, to select victims on the fringe of society. They were often itinerant or criminal or even criminal by association. They were children at times, or even slightly older people. Not too old, but still. And often he went after men who were not white. Um, His first two victims were white, but I think the bulk of the rest of them are black, um, Hispanic, Native American, slash indigenous, um, Asian. Like, he picks people who are not white on a regular basis. And this actually led, once he's captured, to a lot of racial tension in Milwaukee, which is consistently battling with St. Louis to be one of the most segregated cities in the United States. Like, whatever one is number one, the other one's either number two or three. Like, it, they are consistently in the top three. Um, and just because it's 2019 doesn't mean that's changed a ton. I gotta tell you. In February of 1991, he observes a 17-year-old named Curtis Strotter standing at a bus stop near Marquette University. He brings Strotter back to his apartment again with the idea of giving him money in exchange for nude photos. And it's also like, hey, I'll pay you to do the sex. Dahmer drugs and strangles Strotter with a leather strap, then dismembers him and keeps his skull, hands, and genitals. The head is put in the freezer, along with several other heads at this point. On April 7th, he meets 19-year-old Errol Lindsay, who is walking to get a key cut. Now, Lindsay was straight, but... Dahmer somehow gets him back to his apartment, drugs him, and this is where he starts his major experiment to try to 
zombify his victims. Because remember, he doesn't necessarily want them dead. And he later says this in interviews. But he wants them to not leave him. And what's the best way to get someone to not leave is to have complete control of them. And if somebody is in a zombie-like state, you can do that a lot easier than uh, you can with just keeping them bound. Especially in a safe way, too. So, after being drugged, uh, Lindsay winds up with a hole in his skull. So Dahmer drills a hole in and he pours hydrochloric acid right into Lindsay's brain. Lindsay wakes up um, and says, I have a headache. What time is it? He then collapses on the floor and um, just keeps holding his head. At this point, Dahmer drugs him again and strangles him because he's like, well, this didn't work. He decapitates Lindsay, keeps his skull, flays the body, and actually places his skin in this solution of cold water and salt, aka like a brine, for several weeks because he wanted to keep it. But of course, that doesn't work. Um, So he tosses it eventually. At this point, his apartment smells like awfulness. And the other residents in the Oxford apartment building are like repeatedly complaining to management about foul smells, about falling objects, about hearing a chainsaw, etc. The manager, Sopa Princewill, contacts Dahmer in response to these complaints several times, although Dahmer initially excuses the odors because he's like, oh, my freezer keeps breaking and the, you know, the stuff inside got spoiled. Oh, my tropical fish just died, so they're kind of smelly and I haven't had a chance to, like, clean everything out, etc. But we'll come back to his neighbors because it will get wild. Anthony Hughes is a friend of Dahmer's and he's deaf and mute. Um, So he can't hear and he can't speak. He communicates by signing with his hands and also by lip reading for people who don't know how to sign back to him. They are hanging out somewhere else when Dahmer's like, hey, you want to hang out at my house? So they go back to the house. He drugs Hughes, drills a hole in his skull, and injects acid like he previously tried. But this time, and I'm not sure if it's because of the volume or the location of where he drilled, um, the injection winds up killing Hughes. And Dahmer gets really sad about that. Like, he didn't want to kill his friend. He just wanted to keep him around. And... Um, he gets really depressed. Like, I don't know. If you don't want to kill your friend, maybe don't do stuff that could kill your friend. 
That's all I'm saying. That's why I don't text and drive with friends in my car. Only on my own. <laughs> um, he leaves Anthony's body to rot on his bedroom floor before dissolving it in acid several days later. And actually, his body comes into play in this extremely close call I'm about to talk about. On the afternoon of May 26th in 1991, he meets a 14-year-old kid on Wisconsin Avenue. The kid's name is Conorak, and I cannot pronounce the last name because I am so white. Um, I'm going to try. Synthosome phone. Um, I'm just going to keep calling him Conorak because I don't want to mess up his name several times. Um, he approaches Conorak and is like, hey, I'll give you money for pictures. And the kid's like, okay. Um, actually, the kid's really reluctant at first and then comes with him. He poses for two pictures in his underwear before Dahmer drugs him. Um, While he's drugged, he performs oral sex on this kid. And it's important to note, this kid is actually the younger brother of the boy Dahmer molested in 1988 and was convicted of molesting after the kid had to go get his stomach pumped um, from being drugged. And, you know, the kid didn't know that Dahmer was that guy. He didn't remember. This is a couple years later. Um, But Dahmer also doesn't recognize kind of the familial resemblance. Um, It's not until quite a long ways later that they figure this out. But uh, while Conorak is drugged, Dahmer drills a hole in his skull and injects hydrochloric acid right into the frontal lobe. So the front of your head. Before Conorak falls unconscious, Dahmer leads him into the bedroom where Anthony Hughes' body is sitting on the floor naked. And Dahmer says that he believed Conorak saw the body, but Conorak didn't react to it, which is probably because of a mixture of being really sedated and then also, I don't know, having acid in your brain. Soon, Conorak passes out. Dahmer drinks several beers while sitting there next to him and then is pretty sure that the experiment has failed again. He is really upset. So now that he's out of alcohol, he decides he's going to go drink at a bar and then buy alcohol and come back. And he's gone for a few hours. Conrad manages to not only wake up, but to escape, despite being injured and being incredibly out of it. Um, this kid was a badass. Dahmer's neighbor, Sandra Smith, calls police to report that there's an Asian boy running naked in the street. And it's the early hours of the next day when Dahmer comes back to his apartment and he is greeted by Conorak sitting naked on the corner of 25th and State, 
speaking in Lao, because he's Laotian, with three distressed uh, youngish women standing near him. He approaches the trio and explains that Conorak, um, he uses a fake name, by the way, was his friend and tries to get him back into the apartment. But the women are like, oh, no, 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 motherfucker. We called 911. So two officers show up. John Balserzak. Balserzak? Okay. Um, and Joseph Gabrish. Dahmer is like really relaxed and he knows he's got to put on a show. So he tells the officers that Conorak, who is 14, is his 19-year-old boyfriend who had had too much to drink after they fought and that he just acts like this a lot when he's drunk. The three women were like, excuse the fuck out of me. Do you see that this kid is like actively bleeding from his ass and that he doesn't want to go anywhere with Dahmer and like this kid has been hurt. The officers tell her to butt out, shut the hell up and not to interfere in this quote unquote domestic situation. So the officers um, have a towel with them. They wrap Conorak up in it and um, bring him back to Dahmer's apartment. They do try to verify the claim that Dahmer and Conorak are lovers. So Dahmer shows them like these pictures he'd just taken of the kid along with his neatly folded clothing because if he was a victim why would he fold his clothing etc the officers later report having noted a strange smell that kind of smelled like shit um inside the apartment and clearly it was coming from hugh's decomposing body Dahmer stated that to investigate this, one of the officers peeked his head around in the bedroom, but he clearly didn't take a good look because he missed the body on the floor. The officers leave and tell Dahmer to take good care of Conorak. The thing is, had these officers done their due diligence and at least run a background check, um like, run Dahmer through their system, they would have seen that he was a convicted child molester and on probation. Um, and probably would have investigated this more deeply. Especially since this kid is clearly a kid. Like, I know it might be hard to tell um, whether someone's 14 or 19, but I think when you add the layer on that he's a convicted sex offender, that that gets less difficult. The cops leave and Dahmer's like, okay, time for round two. He injects hydrochloric acid right into the frontal lobe again and um, kills Conorak. He takes the next day off of work to devote the entire day to dismembering the bodies of both Conorak and Hughes, and he keeps their skulls. Within a few days, there's an article that appears in the local paper about Conorak being missing, and one of the women who had tried to protect him that night 
calls the police to tell them that, like, this was that kid. The police don't follow up with her at all. So we've had two spots right here where um, women and probably, honestly, black women are saying, like, hey, this is this guy. This is what he's doing. Hello. And police fail to investigate. Throughout this, this like, giant murder period, right, Dahmer is able to maintain his job at Ambrosia Chocolate Factory. His friends and family weren't really suspicious, um, even when they came to his house, because he would take care to really clean up before he let people come over. If he knew his family was coming, you know, he'd clean up, etc. The only thing that his father was suspicious of is, you know, Dahmer hasn't revealed that he's gay. And by now, Lionel is like, yeah, he gay. Probably. But they don't talk about it because toxic masculinity. To quell the neighbor's concerns, Dahmer by now has had a 57-gallon drum put in his apartment that he's filled with hydrochloric acid. So this way, he's able to, like, dissolve bodies right away um, very quickly and has multiple ways of doing so, meaning less smell. At this point, he also knows he needs to change things up a bit because that was a really close call with Conorak. So he decides to take a Greyhound bus, because he doesn't drive, to Chicago, which is about, well, on a Greyhound bus, it's probably closer to three hours uh, of a trip. You can make it in like an hour and a half, depending on how fast you're going. That's all I'll say. On June 30th, he meets a 20-year-old named Matt Turner at the bus station. Turner is like, okay, I'll come with you to Milwaukee because Dahmer has convinced him that he is a professional photographer and is going to have a photo shoot. At Dahmer's apartment, he drugs, strangles, and dismembers Turner, placing his head and internal organs in separate plastic bags in the freezer. Everything else was put into a vat of acid, and Turner winds up not ever being reported missing. Five days later, on July 5th, he lures a 23-year-old... I've seen his name either as Jeremy or Jeremiah. I'm going to go with Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah Weinberger from a Chicago bar to his apartment to spend the weekend with him. Before accepting the offer, Jeremiah asked a friend who he was at the bar with if the friend thought Dahmer was a safe person and that this would be okay. And the friend is like, okay, yeah, no, he seems really nice, like after having a conversation. The two actually wind up having a really nice couple of days um, until Weinberger's like, hey, I really got to go home, like, I have to go to work and shit. And of course, that's the part Dahmer hates. So he drugs Weinberger after requesting one last drink together. He 
twice injects boiling water into Weinberger's skull. The first time it didn't seem to work at all, and Weinberger wakes up seemingly okay. Dahmer drugs him a second time and does the second injection. That sends him into a coma, and he actually dies two days later. During this kind of waiting period, Dahmer is like, okay, I'll go to work. Like, it's fine. Even after that close call, which I think is brazen. Um, And he comes home after a shift to discover Weinberger dead. The body is dismembered and dissolved in acid, but the head is added to the growing collection in the freezer. The friend who greenlit Weinberger's visit to Dahmer's place later commits suicide because he feels hella guilty. I know what you're thinking right now. Uh, with all these heads and body parts in the freezer, Dahmer's running out of room, right? He was. Like, honestly, he had no room for real food in his fridge or his freezer. Um, that really didn't stop him. On July 15th, he meets 24-year-old Oliver Lacey at the corner of 27th and Kilburn. Lacey was an aspiring bodybuilder and had just moved from Milwaukee to, or sorry, to Milwaukee from Illinois to live with his girlfriend and their kid. And Dahmer was like, ooh, I like the muscle boys. So, again, the proposition of posing nude. And Lacey agrees. He goes back to Dahmer's apartment and they do some sexy times before Dahmer drugs him. Dahmer really wanted to spend as much time as possible with Lacey while Lacey was alive. So he tries to render Lacey unconscious with chloroform which does not work. He has to strangle Lacey, and then um, he has sex with the corpse before dismembering him. He placed Lacey's head and heart in the refrigerator and his skeleton in the freezer. And he had asked for, like, a day's absence during all of this, from work which was granted but then he was suspended because he kept missing work right and then his performance was getting shit and on the 19th he actually gets word that he's fired he doesn't get to to come to work anymore and he's distraught he's pissed and he goes to a bar and approaches 25-year-old father of three, Joseph Braidhoft. Like many other victims, he promises cash in exchange for nude photos. Braidhoft was strangled and left lying on Dahmer's bed covered with a sheet for two days. And on the 21st, he removes the sheets to find Braidhoft's head covered in maggots. It's gross. Um, He decapitates the body then cleans the head and places it in the refrigerator which like bruh that just had maggots like why he later acidifies Braidhoff's torso along with two 
along with those of the other two victims he killed within the previous month. So along with Lacey's body and also Matt Turner's body. Nope, not Matt Turner. I'm sorry. Weinberger. I scrolled too far up. So that's kind of the end of his lucky streak. On July 22nd, 1991, he approaches three men with an offer of $100 to accompany him to his apartment to pose nude for photographs. Again. Um, but he throws in like, hey, I've got a bunch of beer, we can drink, and we could just hang out. Out of the trio, one of them agrees to come to the apartment, and that's 32-year-old Tracy Edwards. The other two agree to come party later, but Dahmer gives them the wrong address so they don't interrupt his fun. Upon entering Dahmer's apartment, Edwards notices it smells and also sees the acid on the floor. And, like, he asks about it and Dahmer's like, oh, yeah, like, I do XYZ for work. I use those to clean bricks. He, Dahmer keeps pressuring Edwards to get naked and drink a spiked drink. And he quickly changes from the sweet talker Dahmer from the bar to very pushy and angry. Edwards decides he probably should leave. And Dahmer um, distracts him and puts a handcuff on his wrist. By the time Edwards is like, wait, what's happening? Um, Dahmer brings Edwards to the bedroom to pose for nude pictures. While inside the bedroom, Edwards notes that there's nude male posters on the wall and that there is a videotape of The Exorcist 3 playing. This was Dahmer's favorite movie at the time, and especially during those last couple of weeks, he got increasingly obsessed with it for some reason. Nobody knows. Edwards also notes that 57-gallon drum in the corner, that smells. Dahmer brandishes a knife and informs Edwards he intends to take nude photos of him. So Edwards unbuttons his shirt, and says he would allow him to do that as long as he takes off the handcuffs and puts the knife away. In response to the promise, Dahmer simply just turns his attention towards the TV. Edwards sees Dahmer rocking back and forth and chanting before turning his attention back to Edwards. He places his head on Edwards' chest, listens to his heartbeat, and then with the knife pressed up towards his neck, says that he intends to eat Edward's heart. Edward repeatedly says, you know, I'm your friend. I'm not going to go away. I promise, like, you don't have to worry. You don't need to attack me. In his head, Edwards had already decided he was going to have to jump from a window or bolt through the unlocked front door 
at the next opportunity he had. Edward says he needs to go to the bathroom and then he asks if they could sit with a beer in the living room because that's where the air conditioning unit was. And Dahmer agrees. So the pair walk to the living room as soon as Edwards is done in the potty. Inside the living room, Edwards waits until he observes that Dahmer has a momentary lapse of concentration. And then he asks to use the bathroom again. So Edwards gets up from the couch, saw that Dahmer was not holding on to the handcuffs, and he turns, punches Dahmer in the face, which knocks him off balance, and Edwards bolts for the front door. By about 11.30, he has, and this is on July 22nd, he has flagged down two Milwaukee police officers at the corner of North 25th Street. Um, it took a while for them to understand this was not a domestic thing. But they did notice that he had handcuffs on his wrist. Um, and Edwards explains to them that a freak, that, that's what he said, had placed the handcuffs on him and asked if the police could remove them. The police officers try, but their keys failed to fit that brand. So Edwards um, agrees to show the officers where this apartment was that he just spent, you know, several hours, and they go. Dahmer invites the three people inside and acknowledges that, yeah, he did put handcuffs on Edwards, but he says no, like, he says nothing about why. Not a thing. And normally he's so quick with those explanations. At this point, Edwards also tells the officers that Dahmer had brandished a very large knife and that this had happened in the bedroom. Dahmer says nothing about that. And he tells one of the officers that the key to the handcuffs was in his bedside dresser, dresser in the bedroom. So that officer goes to enter the bedroom. Dahmer tries to kind of block him to get the key himself. And the second officer tells him to back the fuck off. In the bedroom, um, Muller notices that there is indeed a large knife beneath the bed. He also sees an open drawer, which upon closer inspection contains tons of Polaroid pictures, not only of naked dudes, but also of like, the dismemberment process. He notes that the decor in the photos is the same as the apartment that they are in right now. He walks in the living room and shows them to his partner, Robert Roth, and says, uh, these are real. <laughs> when Dahmer sees that Muller's holding several of the Polaroids, he starts fisticuffs with the officers to try to resist arrest. They quickly overpower him, cuff his hands behind his back, and call a second squad car for backup. At this point, Muller is, um... You know, looking around, doing more investigating, and opens the refrigerator to reveal the freshly severed head of a black man sitting on the bottom shelf. 
He later recalls that he heard someone screaming before realizing that it was him. Like, he was screaming himself. Dahmer is pinned on the floor by Roth, and he turns his head toward the officers and mutters the words, For what I did, I should be dead. Uh, yeah. While Edwards is deemed a hero, the publicity also is a negative thing for him. It helps the state of Mississippi catch up with him. They had a warrant out for his arrest due to sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl. Um, at least allegedly. He's arrested and charged with the crime, but I can't find anything about the outcome. I tried. By 2011, um, he is back in Milwaukee. He is homeless. And he gets into a fight with two other homeless men, one of whom falls off of a bridge that they are on and drowns. Edwards winds up with time in prison and probation for, um, like, aiding and abetting because they think that... So, one of the things that I saw said the guy just fell off. The other thing that I saw said the other guy pushed him off and then... Edward stayed quiet, and so that's why he got charged. I don't know. I don't know, but that shit's gone down. Back to Dahmer in 1991. A more detailed search of the apartment conducted by the Criminal Investigation Bureau reveals a total of four severed heads in Dahmer's kitchen. There are seven skulls, some painted, some bleached, in his bedroom, and inside a closet. They discover collected blood drippings upon a tray at the bottom of Dahmer's fridge. Because apparently motherfucker does not clean that shit out. They also find two human hearts, part of an arm muscle, and those are all wrapped inside plastic bags on the shelves. In Dahmer's freezer, they discover an entire torso plus a bag of human organs and flesh that is stuck to the ice at the bottom of the freezer. They also discover two skeletons, a pair of severed hands, two severed and preserved penises, a mummified scalp, and in the 57-gallon drum, three further dismembered torsos dissolving in the acidic solution. Um, there winds up being a total of 74 Polaroid photos that detail dismemberment and sexual stuff. The chief medical examiner later states that it was more like dismantling someone's museum than an actual crime scene. Beginning in the early hours of July 23rd, Dahmer is questioned by detectives Patrick Kennedy and Patrick Murphy as to the murders he committed and the evidence found at his apartment. Over the following two weeks, the detectives conduct numerous interviews with Dahmer, which, when combined, wind up equaling to about 60 hours of face-to-face time with this motherfucker. He had waived his right to have a lawyer present and said he wanted to confess Because he had, quote, created this horror and it only makes sense. I do everything to put an end to it, unquote. He readily admits to having murdered 16 men in Wisconsin since 1987 
and Stephen Hicks back in Ohio in 1978. The detectives uh, wind up being floored and disgusted because Dahmer's so matter-of-fact about all of this. He readily admits to performing necrophilia with several of the victims' bodies, including performing sexual acts with their viscera as he dismembers their bodies in the bathtub. Now, um, what this means, I have sadly learned, is that he, you know, in the process of dismemberment, cuts a hole, say, like, in the dude's belly button. And especially if the body is still a little warm, your body retains the most warmth in your core. I mean, you can tell if you go outside when it's cold. Like, your arms get cold, your legs get cold, but your core usually stays warmer because it has to because you have, like, your heart and shit. Okay, so... Again, he, he let's say he cuts a dude in the belly button and the body's kind of warm. And that's a hole for things to go in. Yeah, it's gross. Uh, it's so gross. Mm. He noted that a lot of blood pooled inside his victim's chests after death. So he usually would remove their internal organs first, and then he'd suspend the torso so that all the blood drained into the bathroom. He then would dice any organs he didn't want to keep and then pull flesh off the body. Bones that he wanted to dispose of were pulverized or um, acidified with soylex and bleach solutions used in the aid to aid in the preservation of skeletons and skulls that he wanted to keep. He confessed to having consumed hearts, livers, biceps, and portions of thighs of several victims that he'd killed within the last year. Describing the increase in his rate of killings in the two months prior to his arrest, he stated he'd been completely swept along and added, It was an incessant and never-ending desire to be with someone at whatever cost. Someone good-looking, really nice-looking. It just filled my thoughts all day long. This is, uh, I don't know why this is so wild to me. I mean, I do, because it's a wild case, but it's, it feels so disturbing. When asked why he had preserved seven skulls and the entire skeletons of two victims, he shared about his private altar that he wanted to make. The display of skulls was to be adorned at each side with the complete skeletons of Ernest Miller and Oliver Lacey. The four severed heads in the kitchen were going to be removed of all flesh and used on the altar. And he still needed one more victim to complete the skull number that he wanted on this altar. Incense sticks were going to be placed at the end, each end of this table, above which he was going to put a large blue lamp with extending blue globe lights. It's, it's those lights that are like um, an octopus thing, 
Right, so you've got the stand, and then there's several different arms with the with these blue globe lights. And this is, again, all to be placed in front of a window that had been covered with a black opaque shower curtain. And then he was going to sit in front of it in a black leather chair. Um, in a November 18th, 1991 interview, they asked who the altar was dedicated to, and he said, myself. It's a place I could feel at home. He further described it as kind of a place for meditation where he felt he could draw power from. And he felt that if they had arrested him six months later, that they would have already seen the altar, that it would be complete. Which, at the rate he was going, I could see it. Um, I don't know if the whole thing would be complete, but... He'd at least have all the components he wanted. He also, it's interesting, he explained that things he did to the bodies, like preserving certain parts, taking souvenirs in the form of body parts, etc., um, the photos, whatever, all of that was a way of remembering, and this, is, this part's a quote, remembering their appearance, their physical beauty. I also wanted to keep... If, if I couldn't keep them here with me whole, at least I felt I could keep their skeletons. <sighs> On July 25th, 1991, he is charged with four counts of murder. And by August 22nd, he is charged with a further 11 counts in the state of Wisconsin. Again, brings the grand total up to 15 on September 14th, investigators in Ohio have, like, by this time, they have gone back to his childhood home and explored the woods right there and found a shit ton of bone fragments. They formally identified two molars and a vertebra with x-ray records of Stephen Hicks, and he's charged by authorities in Ohio with Stephen's murder. He winds up not being charged with the attempted murder of Tracy Edwards, or with the murder of Stephen Twomey. Now, for Twomey, it was because the Milwaukee County District Attorney only wanted to bring charges where there could be no reasonable doubt. And since Dahmer didn't actually have a memory of killing Twomey, um, and there was, like, no physical evidence of it, they didn't feel like they had enough to proceed and that including that within this larger um, number of, of charges could actually hinder the ability for him to be charged successfully and like convicted. At a scheduled preliminary hearing on January 13th, 1992, he pleads guilty but insane to 15 counts of murder. His trial begins on January 30th, 1992, the day my sister's born. <laughs> he spent the day, like, in the hospital, holding her while she slept after she was born, while she was getting pushed out, like, watching The Jungle Book. Um... I don't know. For me, it was a great day. He was tried in Milwaukee for those 15 counts before Judge Lawrence Graham. 
By pleading guilty on the 13th, he had waived his rights to that initial trial to establish guilt, um, something that is at least required by Wisconsin law. The issue debated by opposing attorneys then is whether or not he was sane. The prosecution says that any disorders he did have clearly did not um, deprive him of the ability to appreciate how wrong his actions were or um, and slash or, I guess, that they wouldn't have deprived him of the ability to control his impulses. And the defense were like, nah. <laughs> I mean, basically. the Their experts argued that he was insane due to his necrophilic drive. And one of their experts, Dr. Fred Berlin, testifies that Dahmer is unable to perform or conform sorry, his conduct at the time he committed crimes because he was suffering from necrophilia, which is also known as paraphilia, philia, whatever. Dr. Judith Becker, who's a professor of psychiatry and psychology, was their second witness who also, you know, comes at them with that diagnosis. And then forensic psychiatrist Dr. Carl Wallstrom not only diagnoses Dahmer with that, but throws in borderline personality disorder, schizotypal personality disorder, alcohol dependence, and a psychotic disorder. All of that is a lot, but I also want us to step back and take a look at, are there people with BPD, borderline personality disorder, that don't kill people. Oh, yeah. Are there people who have schizophrenia or any similar disorder and don't kill people? Mm-hmm. Like, all of them. Um, what about people who are dependent on alcohol? A good amount of them don't kill people unless they're driving. I just want us to take a look at that because... Yes, you could have those things, but those things do not drive someone to kill. Having a mental illness, having a chronic illness, having a disability, those things do not make it more likely for you to commit crimes. In fact, they actually make it more likely for you to be a victim of crimes. Um, And depending on your diagnosis, that can be anywhere from up to like two times more likely all the way up to like 10 times more likely than, you know, the average mentally abled person. So I just want to throw that out there. There will be links in the show notes for y'all to educate yourself further on that if that's something you're into. This is the social justice corner for the week. Having a chronic illness, disability, or mental health issue does not make you a murderer. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Okay, back to this, right? The prosecution is like, no, he's not insane. Um, One of their experts, forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Philip Resnick, testifies that, yeah, Dahmer likes 
to do the sex to dead people, but it's not a primary condition because he actually prefers live sexual partners, which is why he was trying to zombify people, right? He doesn't want them dead. He just wants them to do exactly what he wants them to do. He wants control. And so it's not true, like, necrophilia. Another one of their experts, Dr. Fred Fosdell, says that he believes Dahmer was without mental disease or defect at the time he committed these murders. He says Dahmer is calculating and cunning, able to differentiate between right and wrong, and definitely able to control his own actions. He does believe necrophilia is something Dahmer deals with, but also says he's not like a sadist. He's not necessarily, um, you know, going out with this need to harm people. Um, it's essentially derived from I'm on a wiki spiral. It's derived from the Marquis de Sade. So sadists are people who derive pleasure um, if they or someone else is undergoing pain. And it can actually be a part of personality disorders, which, I mean, again, we're going to take a look at and say, hmm, does it make it Does it make you a terrible person if you have a personality disorder? No. Does it mean you're going to do bad things? No. Anyway. Um, The final witness for the prosecution is forensic psychiatrist Park Dietz. And um, he begins his testimony on February 12th. He says that Dahmer's completely sane. Um... Because, you know, he's gone to great lengths to be alone with his victim. He's gone to great lengths to have no witnesses. There's ample evidence that he was really prepared. These crimes were not impulsive. Um, and all of that, right? So he believes, too, that Dahmer's alcohol dependence before committing murder is something that's significant. And he says, if he had a compulsion to kill, he would not have to drink alcohol. He had to drink alcohol to overcome his inhibition to do the crime which he would rather not do. And I think that's really important. He also notes that Dahmer strongly identifies with evil and corrupt characters from The Exorcist Three, which we already know he's obsessed with, and also Return of the Jedi. He also really identified with the power that these evil, corrupt characters had. He saw himself on a similar level. Dahmer would occasionally, like, watch his favorite scenes from these movies before he went out and looked for a victim. And really took power from them which is creepy it's creep don't turn my star wars into your creepy stuff i know this was before me but don't do it well not before me like before i was super obsessed with star wars i don't know 
given the fact that the majority of Dahmer's victims were African-American, um, there were, like I mentioned, some big racial tensions. Um, it got to the point where we were having a number of, um, you know, racial justice leaders coming in to lead marches, give talks, etc. Strict security precautions were taken around, um, like, the trial. So there was an eight-foot barrier, bulletproof glass between Dahmer and other people. Um, One of the things that also pissed off people was there was only one black person on the jury, which, like, I don't know. I'm sorry, but if a lot of this, a lot of what this person has done is negatively affected the black community locally, you should have more than one black person on the jury. Also, like one black person on a jury in Milwaukee is not, um, it does not represent a jury of your peers. Like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, it's just like in everywhere else, you wouldn't just have one black person on a jury. It's It makes me mad. Anyway, um, another thing to note is that Lionel Dahmer, Jeffrey's dad, and his second wife um, attended the trial throughout. Two court-appointed mental health professionals, both ind- independently testifying, um, forensic scientist George Palermo and clinical psychologist Samuel Friedman. Palermo thinks that the murders were a result of pent-up aggression that Dahmer had within himself. He wanted to kill these men because he thought they were attractive. And so, like, he was trying to kill what he hated in himself. And also thinks that Dahmer's a sexual sadist who has antisocial personality disorder but is sane it's amazing how many different personality disorders they're going to try to diagnose Dahmer with amazing um Friedman testifies that it was more of a longing for companionship that caused him to kill um he says Dahmer's not psychotic speaks kindly of Dahmer um Talks about how he's amiable, pleasant to be with, nice, funny, handsome, I don't think so, charming, um, etc. He diagnoses Dahmer with a personality disorder not otherwise specified, featuring borderline, obsessive-compulsive, and sadistic traits. I will say, out of all of the diagnoses, um... That one may feel like it fits the most. Um, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a mental health professional. But I do think that it is important to note when a personality disorder or any other, you know, mental illness has certain traits. So maybe it's just that, like, I like how it's laid out. I don't know. I don't know these things. It just feels somehow a better fit than some of the others. Perhaps it also includes, because it includes the obsessive compulsive trait. I don't know. Anyway, 
The trial lasted two weeks. On February 14th, both lawyers give their closing arguments. They speak for like two hours. The defense attorney, Gerald Boyle, goes first and keeps referring to the mental health professionals. Just about everyone said he had some sort of mental health issue. And um, one of the big sticking points, and it's been quoted in a lot of different things, is that he says that Dahmer's compulsive killings had been a result of, quote, a sickness he discovered not chose, unquote. He keeps painting Dahmer as desperately lonely, profoundly sick, out of control. Um, and, you know, I, I can see where that could sway some people on the jury. After that, Michael McCann delivers his closing argument for the prosecution. He describes Dahmer as sane, in full control. He simply strove to, to avoid detection. He argued that that first murder in Milwaukee, again, because this is for all the Milwaukee slash Wisconsin crimes, that it was committed in hostility and anger and resentment and frustration and hatred and all these big negative feelings and that each victim quote died merely to afford Dahmer a period of sexual pleasure unquote he further argued that by pleading guilty but insane to the charges, Dahmer was trying to avoid accountability or responsibility for his actions. The next day, February 15th, the court reconvenes to hear the verdict. Dahmer was ruled to be sane, not suffering from a mental disorder at the time of each of these murders. Although in each count, two of the 12 jurors signified their dissent. On the first two counts, Dahmer was sentenced to life imprisonment plus 10 years, with the remaining 13 carrying a mandatory sentence of imprisonment, life imprisonment plus 70 years. The death penalty was not an option, because we in the great state of Wisconsin had that abolished in 1853. Dahmer addressed the court later on. And he said, Your Honor, it is over now. This has never been a case of trying to get free. I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world I did what I did, not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. I knew I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness, and now I have some peace. I take all the blame for what I did. I should have stayed with God, he said. I tried and I failed and created a holocaust. I, we're going to get back to that statement in a second. I just want to finish this part. In addition to expressing remorse for victims and their families, he expressed remorse for causing two policemen to lose their jobs, the policemen that failed to rescue Conorak. He said, I hope and pray that they get their jobs back because I know they did their best and I just plain fooled them. 
in both of these statements, we see his cockiness, right? I've created a holocaust. A holocaust is such a big, grandiose, genocidal act, which is not what he did. And all these poor cops, I just fooled them. It's not their fault. I'm just that good. Even in this statement, he is reasserting his control of these situations and reasserting the fact that he is better than everyone else in that room. And honestly, he's probably doing it with a boner. Let's be honest. People like this thrive and get thrills out of having power over other people. I mean, it's what they do, right? Of course, his statement really wasn't consoling and definitely wasn't convincing. There were a number of powerful impact statements from family members that were read. And um, so far, I've only found one video that puts together a lot of snippets of um, some of those statements. But I'll put that link to that video in the show notes. Um, there's a really, it's really important, I think, to read them, to remember that this is not just like, ooh, creepy story, but look, this case affected so many more lives than just, just these 17 people that Jeffrey killed and then his own family, right? It's these people's families, these people's friends. It's Weinberger's friend who commits suicide, right? Because of saying that Dahmer seemed like he was okay. Um, all of these different people struggling with the actions of this man. And there, I, one of the most impactful victim statements is at the very end of that video. Um, so please watch it because I think that's important. Upon hearing of Dahmer's sentencing, his father and his stepmother request to be allowed a 10-minute private meeting with him before he's transferred to the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage to begin his sentence. The request is granted and they exchange hugs Um and well wishes before Dahmer is escorted um, to begin his sentence. Three months after that conviction, he's extradited to Ohio to be tried for the murder of Stephen Hicks. It's really just a formality at this point because, again, he has confessed. So the court hearing lasts just 45 minutes. He again pleads guilty and he's sentenced to a 16th term of life imprisonment on May 1st, 1992. After that, he is transferred back to the Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin. Um, Portage is in, again, Columbia County. It's the Columbia Correctional Facility, right? Um, it is technically part of the Madison metropolitan area but to be honest i don't know that i would consider it that um it is really uh, i mean i guess 
it's north of Madison and just to the east of Wisconsin Dells. So it makes sense to lump it in with Madison, but it's about a 45-minute drive. Like, it is not necessarily close, but I guess that's Wisconsin for you, right? <laughs> Hooray! Um, for the first year of his incarceration, Dahmer is placed in solitary confinement. They were worried about his safety should he come into contact with fellow inmates. And we're talking, like, some of the worst people are in this prison, right? You've got other serial killers. You've got other um, rapists, other molesters. <laughs> and they all absolutely despise this man. Um, and I think there's something to be said with that. I don't know what, but... While Dahmer's isolated, he does have a television and access to books, so... He's probably blasting like Exorcist 3 and reading all the Exorcist novels while he's holed up in his cell for a year. After that, and with his consent, he is transferred to a less secure unit after a year. Um, and then he is get is assigned like a two-hour daily work detail cleaning the toilets. Um he was actually really happy to get out of solitary because he felt his intrusive disturbing thoughts were way more harmful than anything anyone else could do to him he also didn't give a fuck if he lived or died he had regular phone calls with his family his father actually visited a lot making the 11 hour drive from his home in ohio he really wanted to understand why jeffrey committed these crimes um to that end, you know, he writes a book. He does a lot of interviews with Jeffrey. He tries to work to figure out the puzzle pieces that, you know, what what was that last piece that slid into place that caused Jeffrey to really go from the very excited, exuberant kid he'd been before that hernia surgery in his youth, right, to where he is now. Shortly after completing his lengthy confessions in 1991, he had requested um, that he be given a Bible. And from then on, he really devoted himself to being a Christian and, you know, used the phrase born again. And his father also, like, urged him to read a bunch of creationist bullshit <laughs> His father, um, there was an interview I watched earlier, I'm sure it's in the links, but um, with Stone Phillips, and Stone Phillips asks Lionel what um, Lionel would have done had Jeffrey come out as gay, you know, without killing everyone, and Lionel said that he was, and this is paraphrasing, right, he basically would have made him read the Bible. And, like, tried to do something to fix him. A.K.A. probably sent him off to a conversion therapy camp. Um, which is terrifying. And if you don't know about conversion therapy camps, y'all. Who? 
I'm going to put a link in the show notes, a couple links for you to check out. Um, one of which is a great episode of the podcast True Crime Obsessed, which I'm obsessed with. Um, I think that's the one Jesus camp. I mean, whatever one I put in the show notes is it. But if you've listened, you probably know which one I'm talking about. In May 1994, Dahmer is baptized in the prison whirlpool by Roy Ratcliffe, who is a minister in the Church of Christ and a graduate of Oklahoma Christian University. He visits Dahmer on a weekly basis until Dahmer dies. And they regularly discuss things like death and whether or not Dahmer was sinning against God by continuing to live. And that's Dahmer bringing this up. In July 1994, a fellow inmate, Osvaldo Duruthi, attempts to slash Dahmer's throat with a razor embedded in a toothbrush. Um, And it was right after Dahmer was coming back from Roy's weekly church service in the prison chapel. Dahmer gets, you know, some superficial wounds, but doesn't wind up seriously hurt. They had a conversation, and Dahmer's family said, you know, he'd been ready to die already and was ready to accept whatever punishments he might endure in prison. His mom um, also retained regular contact with him, at least over the phone, um, in contrast to, like, his dad and stepmom coming to visit every so often. But prior to um, Dahmer's arrest, he hadn't seen his mom since Christmas of 1983. Um, But now, at this point, he's talking to her on a weekly basis over the phone. And whenever she would express concerns about his well-being, he would say, you know, um, don't worry, whatever happens, it'll be fine. And this one's a direct quote. It doesn't matter, Mom. I don't care if something happens to me. In a 1994 interview with Stone Phillips. Okay, so this is the one I was just watching. Um, It was on Dateline. Dahmer had stated that if a person doesn't believe there's a God to be accountable to, then what's the point of trying to modify your behavior to keep it within acceptable ranges? That's how I thought anyway. So before he'd become, you know super gaudy, right? He didn't think there was any higher power, and so he didn't think it mattered what his actions were. Is essentially what he's saying there. So now that he's born again, he realizes the error of his ways and all that good shit. Um, and supposedly wouldn't do this again. Supposedly. On the morning of November 28th, 1994... Dahmer left his cell to conduct his assigned work detail in the toilets. I just, uh, I like the idea of Dahmer having to work in the shitter. Oh, I like it so much. Um, Accompanying him were two fellow inmates, Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver. The trio wound up being left unsupervised in the prison 
gym like shower toilet area for approximately 20 minutes and at 8 10 a.m Dahmer is discovered on the floor of the bathrooms suffering from extreme head and facial wounds he had been severely bludgeoned in the head and face with a metal bar his head had also been repeatedly struck against the wall shit Although he was still alive and, and, and then was quickly rushed to a nearby hospital, he died within an hour. Anderson had also been beaten with the same instrument and died two days later from his wounds. Scarver, who had already been serving a life sentence for a murder committed in 1990, um, comes clean. He tells authorities he attacked Dahmer first with the metal bar as Dahmer was cleaning a staff locker room before attacking Anderson as Anderson cleaned an inmate locker room. Um, They were in, you know, kind of separate areas, which is weird to me that they were still left unsupervised at all. I just... mm. Um, According to Scarver, Dahmer did not yell or make any noise as he was attacked. He had been adamant at the time he had not planned the attacks in advance, he did later divulge to investigators that he concealed the 20-inch iron bar to kill both men in his clothing shortly before the killing, So, There were questions about how involved the prison staff might have been in these murders. Surprise. Scarver hadn't been on toilet detail until literally that morning. He completely loathed Dahmer. He carried around a newspaper clipping about Dahmer's crimes and and just completely hated him. Additionally, it's highly irregular for guards to leave inmates alone together in a maximum security prison like Columbia. Hmm. Weird, isn't it? In 2015, Scarver speaks to the New York Post about his reasons for killing Dahmer. He alleged that he was disturbed not only by Dahmer's crimes, but by a habit of Dahmer um, where he would take prison food and make it look like severed limbs and then squirt ketchup all over the place to look like blood. This fits very much in with the shit that he pulled as a kid, right? Um, And then he would, like, taunt and antagonize people. So... That was part of the reasoning, and he also alleged that both Dahmer and Anderson had um, taunted him during work detail while they were in completely different spots. He said he confronted Dahmer about his crimes, and Dahmer seemed to be unrepentant, and that's when he beat him to death. He also claimed that prison guards allowed the murders to happen, And that's why they left him alone with these guys. One more thing about the death that puzzles me and many other people is that Dahmer was in really good physical shape. I mean, what do you do in prison? You work out. Like, that's what you do. And I guess make jokes with your food. Um, He could easily have fought back. I mean, a, a metal bar is no joke, but like... He could have fought back, and Scarver says he didn't, and his wounds 
say he didn't. That just leads me back to this whole idea where he's shared his thoughts consistently from his teens even about being suicidal, about not deserving to live, and about questioning if living spits in the face of God. And it it feels like he wanted it. Um, one of the things that I watched was talking about how as a born-again Christian, he knows that suicide is a no-no, but that if someone else killed you, that's not suicide. And you don't necessarily have to fight back. Like, I don't know. I thought that was an interesting thought. In Dahmer's will, he asked that there be no services conducted, and he stated he wanted to be cremated. And by September of 1995, he was, and his ashes were split between his parents. His estate was awarded to the families of 11 of his victims who had sued for damages. In 1996, Thomas Jacobson, a lawyer that represents eight of the families, announced that they were planning an auction of his estate. Although victims' relatives stated that the motivation wasn't greed, people were like, oh my god, you're so greedy! Like, dude, I don't know. Especially for the people who had kids. At this point, they've gone without, um, you know, the income that parent would have had. I don't... It's not greed to ask for um, any sort of reparations or um, monetary or property payment I would say like for wrongdoings that you've been through I think honestly like early 90s peoples weren't there yet in the mindset there was not enough judge duty (laughs) I hate that bitch um (laughs) she's an awful human being so just FYI A civic group, Milwaukee Civic Pride, was quickly established in an effort to raise funds to purchase and destroy Dahmer's possessions. They pledged a little over $400,000, including a $100,000 gift by a Milwaukee real estate developer for the purchase of Dahmer's estate. Five of the eight families agreed to the terms, and Dahmer's possessions were subsequently destroyed and buried in an undisclosed landfill in Illinois. Oh my god, I accidentally scrolled, like, way up. That was terrifying. Um, On August 5th, 1991, a candlelight vigil to celebrate and heal the Milwaukee community was put on, and... Over 400 people attended, so it was really well attended. There were community leaders, gay rights activists, family members, and they really wanted it to be a spot for people to share their feelings of anger and pain and frustration. Oh, excuse me. And and it worked, you know. They got out those feels and... And I think it did bring the community closer together. Although it also definitely pointed out, like, this whole shenanigan, right? 
pointed out the lack of fucks the police gave about queer people and especially queer people of color. That's still going on. And the recent serial killings in Toronto are a uh, good way to say that this uh, is not a thing of the past. I'll put a link to that too. I'm going to put a link to everything. (laughs) The Oxford Apartments, where Dahmer had killed 12 of his victims, were demolished in November of 1982. The site is a vacant lot still. Um, there have been like these thoughts about like, oh, how do we how do we fix this piece of land? Do we build a memorial garden or a park or a playground or new housing? And it just never happens. Which honestly, from a ghost perspective, pretty glad about. Lionel um, released a book in 1994 called A Father's Story, where he explores Jeffrey's life and tries to examine what happened. He also talks about their similarities. Um, It was a pretty interesting, like, I watched a snippet of him reading something and it was interesting. Um, I think we all have some issues about having control over things. But Lionel tended to blame himself And then also his wife, who had been on some medications during, like, her pregnancy with Jeffrey that Lionel's pretty sure caused Jeffrey to be a serial killer. I don't think that's how it works, dude. (laughs) In fact, I'm, like, 99.999999 to the ninth percent sure that's not how it works. Jeffrey's younger brother, because remember, he has a younger brother, um, David. He changed his last name. He lives in anonymity. He's not doing any fucking interviews and shit. He's not having it. And honestly, good for him, because fucking bullshit. I wouldn't want my sister to have to deal with that. Uh-uh. I will say it's interesting. Um, there is an odd amount of pride that Wisconsinites seem to feel talking about Dahmer and it's weird um there's an episode of the Netflix show Dark Tourist where he visits spots in the United States and one of the tours they go on is the Cream City Cannibal Tour and it is so disturbing they make a lot of jokes which like okay I'd probably laugh at the jokes But then they have, like, some jump scares along the tour route and stuff. And that just feels wrong. I mean, the jokes are probably a bit much, too, if we're honest. But, like, jump scares... It's wrong. Um, And, I mean, that tour had been shut down for a time to get its shit back together before it started back up. So, there's some shit. Um, you know, the other thing is that there's just so much incredibly wrong when we have tours that are lighthearted and also only exist to cash in and make light of what happened. 
And I would say especially when those tours tend to attract white women. Um, you know, the, the bulk of the audience uh, on this dark tourist episode, if I'm remembering correctly, I may not be, but I'm pretty sure it was like 90% white women. And I, I don't know. There's something very weird about this obsession we have with serial killers, but also about how that obsession seems to grow with white women um, who think they could, like, fix these motherfuckers, which also, like, Dahmer was gay. Hello. Um, I don't know. It's very odd to me. Very odd. And I also think it's um, telling too because it's still this kind of commodification of pain of people of color right you have hispanic people being murdered you have asian people being murdered you have black people being murdered and we've now like white people have now commodified that and are making money off of that For other white people to consume. And y'all, I am white. Okay, I'm like porcelain white. But that shit is not okay. And we have to do better. It's one of the reasons I started this podcast, right? There are not enough podcasts that talk about these things without playing into that narrative. And it's okay to make jokes, right? Like, if I'm uncomfortable, I will make a joke about something because it makes me feel in control of the situation, right? To go back to that. But, and and release tension, even though I'm the only one talking about this. I don't think my guinea pigs really are paying attention. They're just eating. But, um... Why is it the white people are only creating things for other white people to enjoy? And why is it that when we are creating things for other white people to enjoy, we are not pulling in basic tenets of social justice, of rights, of look at these disparities? Because as much as Jeffrey Dahmer is responsible for his own actions he is also the product of his time and his place he could really only have existed up to the infancy of the internet in milwaukee because by the time the internet comes along right we've got stuff like fet life we've got communities where those of us who are queer can come together and be like hey Watch out for this shady motherfucker with his porn stash. And and that just gets even better the more people have access to smartphones, right? Unless you're a sex worker, in which case they're going to just take out any apps you rely on for that shit. But uh, okay. Um, <laughs> so many topics we're covering. But he could only exist up in that time, I believe, and he could only exist in a place that didn't give a shit 
about the people that he was going to go after. And sure, he thought these people were attractive. But as calculating as he is, I highly doubt that he chose these people only because of his attraction to them without thinking about whether or not they'd be missed or how many people are seeing them leave together or does this person have a family that's going to report them missing. These are things that serial killers think about and we don't necessarily talk about or even think about the fact that they're thinking about it. These are things. Anybody who preys on anyone else is going to think of these things unless they're doing it as an impulse act. And sometimes even then. But we got to start talking about this shit. Right? He killed primarily people of color because that was who you could kill and get away with it. Especially if you were looking at people who are sex workers and especially if you're looking at people who are somewhat transient and living in poverty and need the money and are queer and we can't allow that shit to go unsaid anyway now that I've been in your ears for almost two hours (laughs) and my voice is half dead um That wraps up Jeffrey Dahmer. This was fucking wild. And I'm not sure what I'm going to do next, but it's not going to be another serial killer for a minute. (laughs) It's just not. Uh, Maybe we'll uh, do another cryptid. That'd be kind of fun. We have a lot of motherfucking cryptids, y'all. A quick thing I do want to say. Stealing stuff from True Crime Obsessed. I think one of the things that I'm going to do, I've got a Patreon set up. There's very few of you listening at this point, so I'm not expecting y'all to give me money. But I have a Patreon set up. It's in um, the links on the Podbean page. Should be one of the things I say at the outro, pretty sure. And... I'm either going to do um, watch some documentaries that have to do with stuff and use that as a Patreon episode, like Making a Murderer, right? Or I'm going to watch some movies that are related to Wisconsin and or filmed in Wisconsin, right? So like uh, Psycho's based on Ed Gein, say, watch Psycho and, and do a review of that, Um I'm leaning more towards making the movie stuff um, a Patreon thing, but doing some mini episodes of the documentary stuff. I'm not sure yet, but I will put a poll up on Patreon and make it open to everyone. So if you go to patreon.com slash... Um, I just want to make sure I'm saying, yep, slash spooky scony podcast. You should see a poll and you can um, go in and vote on that. 
and let me know if you think either of those ideas are worthy of spending money on. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for listening and for uh, putting up with me talking about Jeffrey Dahmer for uh, like two and a half hours total. This was a lot longer than I expected it to be, and next time I will plan it out as a couple episodes. Uh, next serial killer I do. Although they may not have this much stuff. We'll see. We'll see what happens. In any case, thanks for listening. Have a great fortnight until I speak with you again. You just listened to the Spooky Scotty Podcast. It's produced every two weeks by me, Kirsten Schultz. The intro-outro music is from Purple Plant. You can find show notes and more over at spookyscani.podbean.com, including a transcript in case you missed anything. Take a minute and rate and subscribe if you can. You'll help more people see the show by rating, and you won't miss a single episode if you subscribe. And that's pretty dope. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash podcast. And you can email me anything you'd like me to know at spookyscanypodcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, sleep tight and don't let the badgers bite.